All right, good evening, everybody. How's everybody? All right, I am, disclaimer tonight, I am like beyond fried, so we'll do our best. Okay, tomorrow, everybody has to say a prayer for me tomorrow. I have to give two hour-long talks tomorrow that I am completely and totally unprepared for, so say a prayer for me tomorrow. No, they're at the diocese. Yeah. It's on. Trust me, like, if I do... Okay, now it's on. There we go. Okay. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we bless you tonight. Uh, Spring uh, uh, breaks in this year. Lord, we ask for your peace and your joy. Uh, we ask you to bless our time together. Uh, I ask you to bless all those coming to the church this Easter as we draw close to that. Uh, prepare these souls as they uh, draw near to that. Uh, and Lord, we give this time to you. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and never shall be. World without end, amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, it's been a while since we met. I was so angry last week when we got that storm. I couldn't believe it. But it happened. So I think some of our kids in the school were praying for that. Okay, before we um, jump in, any questions, anything that's been burning on your hearts and minds uh, since we last met or just in general? We still have a lot to cover. I know I'm like feeling that right now. There's a lot to, to still hit. So hopefully we can cover a lot of ground tonight. But any, any last chance, any last questions before we jump in? We've talked about we're in the middle of the sacraments. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, Christian music, not at all. No, a lot of people just say that that's bad taste, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but I like Christian music too. I like, I like certain, uh, certain bands. It's actually really good because it fills your, <clears throat> I don't know if I want to get into too much, but repetition is the mother of learning. And if you listen to, we all like to think that nothing affects us over and over and over again, you're going to become negative, right? We all, if you, the friends you hang around, you ever notice that you start to talk like your friends? Repetition hits us. And so the, the thing with music, music's actually an incredible, incredibly powerful thing. And, and so it does matter what kind of music you listen to. So Christian music, generally, it's a really good thing because it, it builds up your faith. Um, but the church doesn't have an official position on it. Other questions? Yeah. Um, so for like six months. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, does the church have an opinion 
Right. Yeah. So does the church have an opinion on intelligent beings, other places outside of earth? The church does not have a position on that. Um, the really interesting, uh, I actually haven't read it. So I'm, it's one of the books I still need to read. C.S. Lewis has, and he, you know, he wasn't Catholic, but he was very close. Um, he has a, a trilogy called the Space Trilogy. Has anybody read those? No. Emily, you have. And so I forget, Paralandra's one, but I forget the names of the other two. But. Okay. Okay. They're supposed to be phenomenal, but basically it explores that question, and it's a story. But the question would be, that there's lots of interesting questions. One, the, the biggest thing I think would be, if God created other intelligent beings, that would mean they have a, a soul that's similar to ours, if they're intelligent. And the question would be, and so, so those, those novels, as I understand them, um, not novels, whatever, f- fiction, what they, what they envision is what would happen if we discovered a world where the fall never happened? What if there were a planet where they had never encountered original sin? Um, so I, that sounds really interesting. I should read those. <laughs> Yeah, so the church does not have a, a, a position on that. It doesn't bother us if there are, is intelligent life out there. It doesn't bother Catholics. It would raise questions, you know, about like, um, there's only one God, but did they, have they experienced redemption in the way that we have? Did they, need, did they have original sin? These kinds of things. So, does that answer it? Yeah, they're the right questions. Okay, anybody else? It's good to see you all. I know what you're thinking. Wish I could say the same. <laughs> I say that. I'm such a jerk. I say that to people sometimes. I'm like, Brian, so good to see you. I'm like, wish I could say the same. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's what happens when you become a priest. So tonight we want to hit, <clears throat> we want to finish up as much as we can on sacraments. I'm hoping to actually finish all of sacraments tonight. We'll see if that happens. Um, the two biggest ones I want to cover that we haven't covered yet are the sacraments of, um, the, the catechism calls them sacraments that are uh, at the service of the Christian faithful, I think it says. So there's sacraments of vocation. And so within those, you ha- so let's, let's do a quick review. So you have sacraments of initiation. And those are baptism, uh, confirmation, and Eucharist. Um, And then you have sacraments of healing. What are the sacraments of healing? Anointing of the sick and, and, yeah, confession. Confession and anointing. <clears throat> Did we talk at all about anointing in class? I don't think I don't think we've done that yet. Okay, and then finally, we have sacraments of service. You could call them or vocation, and uh, those are uh, marriage and holy orders. So we're going to try and knock both these out tonight, and if we have time, hopefully we'll get to that as well. Okay.
So how to start here? So we're gonna let's start. Do you guys want to do marriage first or priesthood first? Marriage. Okay. Figures you would choose that. You're married. Uh, forever. Actually, till death do you part. But that's another story. Okay. Um, so what do we need to hit with marriage? So, so there's a couple of things I want to do with marriage. So Catholics believe this, and now I'm going to, I love RCIA. You guys make me happier. Like, cheer me up. I had like this terrible, I was like, poor like Mary Rogers Sunday day. I was like, I was a big fat jerk today, BFJ. And um, I totally was. People in the office like, hey, FB. I'm like, oh, don't talk to me. But RCIA cheers me up. Okay, marriage. So Catholics believe and Christians believe that Marriage is something, right? It begins all the way back with Adam and Eve, right? So it goes all the way back to the dawn of time. So marriage is the most natural thing on earth. It's a thing we desire more than anything, right? It's the reason that like 90% of songs on the radio are about, you know, love and marriage, except now they've just evolved into like, let's not get married and just have casual sex. But that's another, we'll get to that when we get to morality. Um, but we all, marriage is so good, right? It's at the heart of everything. So um, remember way back when we did the creation story? This is important. So in the creation story, right, you have, um, there's two problems. In Genesis 1-2, it says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And so that's the problem. It's formless and it's void. So, on the first day, what does God create? Light, right? And he separates the light and darkness. Day two, what does he create? This is where you make me feel like a great teacher. Right? <laughs> Day two, right, is the sky and the sea. He separates the sky from the sea. And day three is what? Dry land. So notice all of those things, they're forms or forums. Right? They're, they're, they're the forums of the world. So that solves that first problem of creation that it was formless. But the second problem is that it's void. And so this, the, the next three days, right, are going to solve the problem of the earth being empty and void. So on day four, what does God create? Sun and moon, right? And stars. Day five, birds and fish. And day six, Animals like land animals and man. And if you ever forget that, the great thing, right? And this is so cool. If you weren't here at the beginning of our CIA, one of the things we talked about is that the creation story in Genesis 1 is not about how God created the world. It's not. 
It is not a scientific textbook on how God created the world. It never has been, never will be. It's not what it's about. The, the author of Genesis clearly is not interested in that question. Genesis is not a story about how God created the world. It's a, question about, it's a story about why God created the world. So, right, the obvious thing that hopefully you've seen is that these things go together, right? I do not know. <laughs> yeah, how is there light? Here's the other thing. <clears throat> People who believe, and once again, it's so great to be Catholic. God can create light however he wants. St. Augustine, when he reflects on this in the fourth century, he believes that those words, let there be light, actually refer to the creation of angels. Um, so, so Christians have seen that problem for 2,000 years. Here's the other question. People, and not to pick on them, but people who believe in seven 24-hour periods, right, that's impossible with Genesis 1, right? When you talk about a day, day one and 24-hour periods and the sun, you know, rotating on its axis, that's, that's, that doesn't fit the schema, Right? How can you have a full day before there is a sun? It, that's not what Genesis is about. It's not about evolution. It's not about cosmology. It's about a God who loves the world. Okay, so he does all this. Day seven, he rests, and that's the day of covenant. But here's what I wanted to build out. You're like, I thought we were talking about marriage. We are. God makes a world where things go together. Right? God loves things that go together, which is what you love, right? Because you're made in the image and likeness of God, right? <clears throat> All of us, it's the funniest thing on earth. You're never going to meet a human being who doesn't hunger for communion, right? What is, I don't just mean it in the, in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Most people don't even know what that is. But I mean in the sense of like communion meaning deep relationship. I mean, all of us, we all hunger for that. I hunger for that. That's what I want more than anything. And creation is a story that builds that way. And if we had more time, we'd talk about how there, there's this hierarchy. And for Jews, the land here, that, that's a very big deal. Haaretz in Hebrew. I don't know too many Hebrew words. More Greek. But they know that one. But anyway, land's a big deal for them. And that, I'm not even going to say it. This is too much. But the high point of all these things that go together, the sun and the moon go with the light and the darkness, the birds and the fish go with the sky and the sea, the animals and man go with the dry land. <coughs> Sorry. I hate coughing in microphones. The high point of all of this, what is the greatest communion of all creation? It's, uh, there were like four answers, so I, some of you might have said it. The high point of all creation, the greatest communion of all creation, is Adam and Eve. That's the high point of all creation. So much so, right, that God, after every day, he looks at what he created, right, and he says, it is good. But on the sixth day, he looks at everything after he's created Adam and Eve, when you have the first marriage, and he says, it is very good. Right? Communion is what we're made for. So marriage, marriage is the highest 
communion that exists. It's beautiful. Okay, <clears throat> so that's part one. So Kat, because of that, because God created marriage from the very beginning, because he did that, Catholics recognize essentially almost any marriage is valid. So we don't look and say like, you know, those Hindus out there, well, that's not marriage. We don't say that. That's real marriage. Atheists who get married, that's real marriage. Because marriage is for all human beings. It's built into our nature. Okay, but here's why marriage, though, for us, if you're a Catholic, marriage is not just a natural good thing. It is that. But here's why it's even more is that Christ took something good and he elevated it. So, and, well, I, didn't, I should have printed this off. In John chapter 1, did we talk about John 1 in the seven days? So in Genesis chapter 1, the very first words of the Bible, how does the, the Bible start? What are the very first words of the Bible? In the beginning, right? In John 1, 1, the Gospel of St. John, what are the very first words of John 1, 1? Does anybody know? In the beginning, right? <clears throat> and so, so John 1 wants us to think about Genesis. The beginning of the Gospel is it's a new beginning. And one of the most powerful things about Christianity is Christianity is not the religion where we just die and get to leave this world behind. Christianity is the world where God makes all things new. Love that. Okay, so Genesis 1, in the beginning, John chapter 1, in the beginning. And uh, John wants us to think about creation. He starts talking about light. Right? The first thing God creates is light in Genesis 1. But in John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By the way, how did God create the world in Genesis? He spoke it. He spoke it into being. And so John says, in the beginning was the Word. And so what John's saying is the way God created the world was through Jesus, who is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, right, through Christ, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was light. And the light was the life of men. Uh, and then he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the beginning of John's gospel, St. John wants us to, to think about Genesis. And he wants us to see that not only was Christ there at the beginning of creation, but in Jesus, the world is made new. Which, by the way, is very powerful for every one of us in this room. Right? I don't know about you, but a lot of days, you ever just feel like you could use a new beginning? Right? I feel like that all the time. I'm like, oh man, I am just a train wreck. You know? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kind of a mess. 
And the New Testament is, is very big on through Jesus, the world is made new and you can be made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Love that passage. Okay, so in John chapter 1, though, what happens is there's seven days. And most people never see this because I feel like I've been teaching this a lot lately, but most people have never heard this. So in John chapter 1, there's, John keeps saying things like the next day. So you have this echo where it says, in the beginning. And this is why, by the way, right? Some people think, oh, the Old Testament's bad, the New Testament's good. You can't understand the New Testament if you don't know the Old. If you don't know that Genesis 1 starts with in the beginning and God created, the, and the first thing he made was light, if you don't know that, you're going to miss all of that in John chapter 1. Okay, so in the beginning was the word, all that I just recited a minute ago. So there's this whole section that goes all the way up to verse 28. And then in verse 29 of John, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, which John the Baptist did. Then down in verse 35, it says, the next day. And then down in verse 43, the next day. So, so John, all of a sudden, he's, he's counting days. The next day, the next day. Did you catch what, what day are we on now? What number? We're on day number four now. And then chapter two starts, and John 2, 1 says, on the third day. And this is a little confusing, because you might think, oh, we're going back a day. But John's counting from the fourth. So if you count from the fourth day, three days later, what day does that put us at? The seventh day. Good math. Um, and does anybody know what happens in John 2? So, yeah, I heard it mumbled. Wedding at Cana. So look at this. So John, John's gospel, just like the beginning of, of Genesis, it starts with seven days. And the height of the original creation, the very high point, was the communion between man and woman that we call marriage. And the height of the new creation, where Jesus comes to make all things new, is also a marriage. Isn't that beautiful? Love that. There's even more we, we could get to this. But, he, but here's the point I want to make with that whole parallel there. And there's more we could go into. Ephesians chapter 5 is big on this. <clears throat> but, and maybe it's worth mentioning this. In Ephesians 5, St. Paul calls marriage a mystery. Which is the Greek word for sacrament. Now think about this. <clears throat> and here's what I want to hit you with tonight is with marriage, is that 
we have a radically different understanding as Catholics than most of the world does about marriage. Which is why marriage, right, that's why we have no controversy and no disagreement with secular culture about marriage. That's why we get along, I'm just kidding, right? Everything controversial with the Catholic Church is about sexuality and marriage. Um, so what we believe, if you get married, if you have a Catholic marriage, if you are baptized, and actually we think any Christian, if you're a baptized Christian and you marry another baptized Christian, marriage is a sacrament. And what that means is that God took something that was already good, right? We see it, when, when people are like pagans, they've never been baptized. I don't walk by them and be like, <laughs> lame, right? I don't do that. Uh, I am a jerk, I know. But if you have a sacramental marriage, what that means is that your marriage helps save you. It's actually a means by which God communicates grace into your life and you actually find salvation in marriage. That's what a sacrament does. A sacrament saves us. It brings the grace of the cross into each of our lives and it saves us. Okay, let's pause there. Questions on that? Yeah, Ben. Yeah, and if and there's a couple of it gets a little confusing here. So people always want to know. It's a good point to hit this right now. If you're Catholic, if you're baptized Catholic, this is one of the big rules: you must be married in the church. And it's hard for people to imagine, but here's, here's why. So if you're a Catholic, you have an obligation to be married in the Catholic Church. Why is that? Because the sacraments belong to Jesus, and if you're a baptized Catholic, so do you. Yes. If you were not... So it, let, me, let me just finish this, and I think we'll answer that, and if I don't, come back at me. So what the church says, the church, if you're baptized Catholic and you're married outside the Catholic church, the church will not recognize that as a valid marriage. And here's why. It's really hard for most people to understand this. <clears throat> but if you have a sacramental grace or a sacramental marriage... And if you're, what the church is saying essentially is this. If you're a baptized Catholic, this is the type of, this is the only type of marriage that's possible for you. And while marriage outside the church is not evil, it's not wrong, it's, someone, it's like someone saying, man, I have the best thing on earth, but I want to get married in a natural marriage. And what the church says is you've been redeemed by Christ. You were baptized, Right? from the cross and it's impossible for those baptized to step down to a lower level. So marriage, because Christ elevated it, it belongs to him. And if you're a baptized Catholic, you have an obligation to be married in the church. This is why if you come to me in my office, which happens a lot, if you come to me in my office, you say, Father Brian, we just, it was, this one broke my heart two or three years ago. This couple came and they'd been, they, they were checking out Lourdes and they loved it. And they're like, they're like, Father Brian, we're so excited about marriage prep. We're so excited to get married. And we went through this whole meeting and I, we explained the process. And they're like, this is going to be so great. And they, they were nervous, I could tell. And they said, and we're getting married on a golf course. 
And I was like, no, you're not. And they're like, yes, we are. And I was like trying to like kind of dance and like win them over. And I'm like, do you know that we have the grotto? You're actually allowed to use the grotto. It's like one of the only places. Come check it out. Let's go look at it. And, and they left the Catholic church because they wouldn't, because they want to get married on a golf course. So, so the church demands that her sons and daughters be married in Christ. Because marriage, and, and this, this is going to, I know this is a hard one. We're going to talk about a little, little bit more time on marriage tonight. And we're going to talk about what the world believes versus what the, the church believes. Okay, but let's pause again. Any more questions on that? We're going to hit more of this, Lauren. Yeah, but it's easy. So Mary always jokes about this. Her and I joke. If you are like going into marriage and you're like, I don't know if this is going to last, don't get married. Right? And I actually really mean that. But people, but people joke, don't get married in the church because be, you can get an annulment like that. But don't really do that. That's a joke. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't mock sacraments. It's not a good idea. But yeah, so if, if you... Um, how, what was the question? If you're a Catholic and you get married outside the church, the church will not recognize it. And so if you come for an annulment, and here's, we've, we're using that word. Gosh, an annulment, and this is getting into the next teaching. So let's pause. I'm going to get into this next thing on marriage next. But any other questions about stuff we've already said? Yeah. Just to get the categories right. Yes, thank you. Yes. Okay. There's a natural marriage between non-Catholics. What about baptized people? Yes. Who, are, who were not baptized Catholics? Thank you. Great. That's an important question. So if you're not baptized Catholic, but you are baptized, it is a sacramental marriage. So if two Protestants who have been baptized get married in a Protestant church, that is a valid sacramental baptism that confers grace. Now, if a... We could do all the scenarios here, right? <clears throat> if you're someone who's baptized in a non-Catholic church and you're marrying a Catholic, if you get married in the Catholic church, sacramental, valid marriage. We allow that. Um, and that communicates grace. Um, what, am, what categories am I missing? There are certain churches that have valid governance, but yeah. So I'm not baptized. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're not, it's not a sacramental marriage yet, but are you getting baptized? It will become the moment you're baptized. So the, wait, isn't that cool? I love that. So the moment you're baptized, your marriage becomes a sacramental marriage. Um, yeah, so baptism is the entryway to all the sacraments. But yeah, and, and one cool thing to say about this Every other sacrament in the church is conferred by someone else. So when, when you get baptized, a priest or a deacon or whoever baptizes you, when you receive communion, the priest said the mass, every, when you go to confession, you, the priest hears your confession, confirmation, when you get married, the, the, the minister of the sacrament are the husband and the wife. A priest does not confer the sacrament of marriage. When I go to marriages and to weddings, I am there as a witness that this man and this woman have conferred the sacrament of matrimony. Isn't that cool? I love that, yeah. Either one of you, yeah. Uh, so then do you not 
Uh-huh. Well, here's, I know all this sounds weird. It's like, which tricky, what tricky rule am I missing right now? Right? Does it sound a little that way? Here's why. It's just, it's the A word. Authority. The church has legitimate authority over the sacraments. So, if you get married in a Catholic church, hold on, let me finish. It, it would be, but, <clears throat> yeah, but the, the church... And I, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. But um, yeah, the church has authority to dispense of things. So in rare circumstances, the church can say, oh yeah, you can get married outside. It almost never happens. In the United States, almost no bishop will allow that. But they could. And what it really boils down to is authority. And what the bishops want to do is they want to protect the dignity of the sacrament. Because today, and this is going to be our next thing, is that the real question we want to get at is what is marriage? And that's why the church cares whether you get married in church or not. Because it just looks uptight, right? It looks like, why do you care? We just want to get married on a mountainside. Can you just loosen up? When you understand what the church believes marriage is versus what the culture does, I think it'll help at least. Okay. Right. Well, and I think what usually happens is people don't think of marriage as a sacrament. They think of it as just an, as the ordinary thing you do. You fall in love, you get married, which is good. But we'll get to the, that's why it's important that we get to what the Catholic Church believes about marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Can you ask me that when we get to the end of marriage tonight? So we say, hang on to that and come back. Okay, no more questions. You guys are too... <laughs> Dr. Sona, right, in seminary, we used to always have tons of questions, and she would always say, put your hands down. <laughs> and she would, she, she would always joke, she's like, stop being so interested. Stop it. <laughs> okay, here's what this is all about. What is marriage? So when we get to morality... We're going to talk about what is marriage on the natural level, which continues into the sacramental. But tonight I just want to talk about what is marriage in the church sacramentally? What do we mean by that? The normal thing that the world thinks, right, is like, um, I don't know, think of your favorite rom-com. And, you know, you fall in love and like, oh my gosh, like, I always think of it, we, you've heard me joke about this probably at Lord's already, the Father Glenn always said that the best like romance writers in the whole world would be priests. And it's totally true because we like romanticize marriage. Because we like, I'm like, you're made for marriage. And we'll get to that when we talk about priesthood. Like, and I've been called out of that for the sake of the church. But like I, I will desire marriage to the day I die. And I just imagine marriage is just like I talk to married couples, and I'm like, man, it must be so amazing. Like, it's like Steve, I bet you come home and you're just like man, long day. And you're just like, honey, can I have a drink? And you get a drink and then you guys just make out for three hours. And it's like, you know, yeah. And the guys always say, man, that does sound nice. And they're like, that has never once happened ever. But the world tells us that. The world tells us marriage is like, oh man, like it's just so romantic. And you just like, you always look gorgeous. And it's just all about that. That's what the church, that's what, or that's what the world says. 
The church believes that marriage is about salvation. And how do I want to say this? Um, marriage communicates that grace. And so the goal, maybe that's the best way to talk about it. What is the goal of marriage? If you talk to the world, you know, and not that they're bad, and I don't want to caricature it too much. It's kind of fun to a little bit. But, but I think the world wants to say it's about romance and fun and sex. And kids, maybe. With an asterisk, right? Yeah, it, it is. And people do want kids. I'm, you know, they do. But, it's, but we all know right now, right, that's maybe you do, maybe you don't. But the church, the goal of marriage, right? If you want to talk about the goals of marriage for the church, the ultimate goal of marriage is salvation. And here's why. Marriage is about love, but the world, the world thinks love is a feeling, right? Christianity believes that love is not a feeling, Love means, and this is how St. Thomas Aquinas defines it. St. Thomas Aquinas says that love is to will, right, to choose is what that means. Love is to will the good of someone else. Right, if you love someone, you want what's best for them. And so Father Garansky would always tell us, he'd say, you know, you love someone not when you feel good around them. Like, I feel good around a lot of people. But real love, and I, I, I just, I'm going to try not to use the word love again in this, but real love is, Gronsky would say, you know you love someone when you are willing to suffer for them. Real love is not, I feel good around you. I hope you feel good around your spouse, by the way. If you're like, Honey, I do not like you very much, but I am willing to suffer for you. <laughs> Hopefully that's not the case. But, but you really love someone when that's present. And so salvation is the first thing. And what, and what could be better for someone? Not only do I love you that I want you to have a good life and I want you to be successful and happy and healthy and all those things. But if you really love someone, I want you to have eternal salvation in God. There is nothing greater you can wish for someone else. And marriage does that. And we'll get to that in one second. The other goal is children. And we'll get to that. I think we're going to talk more about that when we get to morality and we talk about the church's teaching on contraception. <clears throat> but, but maybe the simple thing there, maybe just the one line I'll throw out tonight before we go more in depth in it later Love overflows. When, it, when you love someone, love, the, the, the technical phrase we use in theology is the good is diffusive of self. So um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Phyllis, what's your favorite movie? Do you have one? Who's your favorite priest? Just kidding. Um, don't answer that. What's, do you have like a, a sound of music? Okay. Now, Sound of Music, the first time you saw, I love Sound of Music. 
the first time you sound, sound, saw Sound of Music, we like, I love this so much that I just want to keep it all to myself and I'm not going to tell anybody about it. What did you do? Yeah. Now, if other people go and see The Sound of Music, do you technically get anything out of that? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. We're happy that they can experience it. But you don't really get anything. You know, like, Rogers and Hammerstein aren't sending you royalties. You know, you're not... There's nothing like that. But there's something in human beings... When you have something good, you naturally want it to bless others. You naturally, and, and so the, the church has always said, the good is diffusive of itself. And what that means is when there's something good, it naturally wants to go out. Isn't it? Yeah. It's why RCIA is such a joy for me. Right? It's work, but like I love sharing these things because they're beautiful and true and good. And the good is diffusive. It wants to spread. Children are like that. But we're, I want to punt on that a little bit. We'll get to that. Okay. I want to hit a couple of the, the controversial things with marriage. So Jesus, right, the, the, the early Christians, and this is, this is so beautiful. The early Christians believed that the cross was a marriage. Remember this when we, I'm, I'm almost positive we talked about this. Remember Adam and Jesus and Mary and Eve, the, the parallels? So really quick, Adam is in a garden, right? When is Jesus in a garden? Gethsemane, but also an empty tomb, right? When, when we go to Jerusalem, you'll find out that the tomb and Mount Calvary were both in a garden. But in, in John 21, when Mary Magdalene comes to the empty tomb, she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Mount Calvary was inside a garden, just outside of Jerusalem. Adam's in a garden, Jesus is in a garden, right? <clears throat> um, and the, there's tons more than this, but really quickly. Adam, the way that God created his bride, how did God create Eve? From his rib. And what state of like, what state was Adam in when God, he was asleep. So the fathers of the church say that Adam was asleep and God took his rib and that Jesus slept the slep of death on the cross when the soldier pierced him right at the rib and pierced his heart and outflowed what? Blood and water which the early Christians believe is the church. Why? Because the, because those, the blood is, is the Eucharist and water is baptism. And so, and also what day of the week, that's the other thing, what day of the week did that happen on? When was Jesus crucified? What day of the week was Eve created? It's kind of, usually when I ask you a question, it's like the same thing we just said, yeah. It's Friday. Eve was created on Friday, so it was Adam, on the sixth day. And that is not lost on the early Christians. It's not lost on the gospel writers that the new bride of Christ, which is the church, which is what Ephesians 5 says, happened here. So 
so most people, I'm, I'm pretty convinced of this. People out in the world, they're not bad. Marriage in the world is not bad. Marriage is always good. But most people in the world, I think, you kind of get married. You hope it goes well. We love each other, you know, and maybe we have kids, and we just kind of live life. The Christian conception is that marriage is a mission. Marriage actually teaches people how to love, and it actually saves them for eternal life. One last thing, we'll take a break on this. Um, the, the reason marriage saves you, there's many reasons. The primary reason is the grace of the sacrament. But here's the other thing. When you, when you love someone, the, the, the great sin of mankind is pride. And pride is a kind of like, I love myself more than anybody. And when you get married and you have kids, the reason marriage saves you, it's not just nice and this is fun and we're both really good kissers and whatever. The reason marriage saves you is because you have to learn how to love someone more than yourself. And Jesus says all over the Gospels, he says seven times in the Gospels, he says, the one who seeks his own life will lose it. But the one who loses his life will find it. And the world tells us, you want to be happy, you want to have a great life. The world kind of says, and not maliciously, but it kind of says, be selfish. Get really ahead financially, be really stable, right? Have kids once you're financially stable. Now, those of you who have kids, did you ever get financially stable, right? Yeah, no. They're laughing, which means no, right? You're never going to be 100% financially stable, Marriage forces us. Most people are saved through marriage. It saves them because it teaches them how to love their spouse and their children more than they love themselves. And that will lead them to eternal life. Okay, let's take a three-minute break and then we'll finish up marriage. I'll turn it off for now. Okay, everybody, we're getting close. Sorry to rush everybody. We just got a lot left to do. Okay, so... We're going to talk about gay marriage, but not tonight. We're going to talk about that when we get to morality, because I know probably a ton of you, that's a big question for you, and it's an important question, and we will talk about that. But I want to talk about the other controversial issue in Catholic teaching, which is divorce. So the, the text we're going to be operating out of here is the main place where Jesus teaches about marriage in the Gospels. Um, and there's different places, but Mark chapter 10 is what we'll use. It's also in Matthew 19. Um, And where is it in Luke? Let's see. Um, Oh, it's not in Luke. Okay, so Matthew 19 and then Luke chapter, or Mark chapter 10. So you've heard this, I imagine, before, but let me listen to this. Let me listen to this. Hear this out. So uh, Mark 10 verse 2. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, real quick, what's the Catholic teaching on that? Yeah, the church doesn't like divorce. Um, In the book of Malachi, God says that he hates divorce. I think it's Malachi 5. 
But the church actually permits divorce. And we'll get to that. Okay, so the Pharisees came up in order to, and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Jesus knows they're testing him, right? Which happens a lot in the Gospels. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, for your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And here's a very interesting thing. So in Mark 10, 6, Jesus says something very interesting. So for your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now here's why I say 10.6 is interesting. And Jesus, there's hints at this in other verses what happens, right, we just talked about how, how God is recreating the world, right? John's gospel begins in the beginning. Jesus is going to make all things new. So in the beginning, right, so Jesus makes a reference to Genesis chapter 1. And then the Pharisees say, but Moses allowed us to have a divorce, which I forget which passage that is, but it'd be Leviticus or Deuteronomy. So let's just say Leviticus, why not? I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure it'll say here. Uh, Ah, I was wrong. Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy 24, Moses allows that. And notice what Jesus is saying here is he's going to say, but from the beginning, and how he, this is how he says it in Matthew 19, from the beginning, it was not so. And so God's gonna, Jesus is going to go back to God's original plan from the way he made the world. And here's, and this is a little bit of an aside, but what, what the church believes is that the reason we don't follow all of the Old Testament laws is because God's like a good father. You remember when you were a teenager and your parents had rules where you were like, okay, you got to be home by nine o'clock and you were a teenager and you were angsty and you were like, you don't love me, right? <laughs> Anybody do that? I actually didn't because we never had a curfew. But lots of teens do, right? You're like, you didn't love me. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anything evil about nine o'clock at night? You're all looking at me like, I'm not going to answer that question, Father Brian. No. no yeah, yeah, it's true. Nothing, but yeah, nothing good happens after midnight. That's true. That's true. So, but anyway, yeah, the, there's nothing evil about 9 o'clock. But when you're a teenager, you're not responsible enough to live up to that. And what the New Testament shows in a lot of places, and if you really want to study this, the strongest place is Galatians chapter 3. Um, 
God said, okay, you know what? Israel's and mankind, they're not strong enough yet to be where they should be. So I'm going to walk with them and not have what's perfect. And I'm going to lead them till they can get to a place where they can turn back to what the teaching was always from the start. Okay, so here's the Catholic teaching. So then let's keep reading this passage really quick. In the house, the disciples asked him, by the way, in Mark's gospel, Jesus has a teaching for the crowds, which the early Christians say is those outside the Catholic church. And then the apostles ask him questions and he takes them inside. And the reason they think it's the church is because whose house do they go into, do you know? It's Peter's house. When Jesus is in his ministry, he's living in Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And when we go to Israel, you'll see Peter's house is still there. There's a church built over the top. And they go inside Peter's house, which the early Christians believed is a symbol of the church. And then Jesus explains things more clearly. Right? Which is that symbol that you can't just follow Jesus from a distance. If you're really going to follow him, you're not going to understand. You have to take a chance. You have to come follow him. You have to come into the church. You have to give your life away. And when you come into the house, when you come into Peter's house, the Lord explains things. Okay. In the house, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here's the Catholic teaching, and I could have said this much quicker. The Catholic teaching is not that divorce is evil. It's that it's impossible. Right? The, the, church, the Protestant churches tend to believe that divorce, and in most places you go, they'll say divorce is a sin, is what they'll say. But they'll say, but what does God do with sin? He forgives it, Right? He, he does. He forgives sin. That's, that's who he is. And so if you get divorced, we wish you wouldn't have, but that's okay. God forgives sin. In the Catholic Church, we believe that divorce is impossible. Yeah. That's exactly where we're going. So she said, as long as you don't remarry. And that is the issue. And so, so I have men and women in my office all the time. And then the first whole thing we hope for, if there's a situation where it's headed for a divorce, we're like, what we hope for is healing and reconciliation. Right? And when you take your vows, gosh, there's, it's so hard to cover everything in RCIA. I just could go forever. When you take your vows, why is marriage so beautiful? Why, is it, why do I at, a, at weddings, I'm like, yeah, I got something in my eye. Because when I stand there and a husband and wife look into each other's eyes and promise something that is the most sacred, beautiful promise on earth, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It is so powerful. When it, and like, I get choked up. I've probably told you the groom sometimes like, FB, I'm getting married, not you. I'm like, oh yeah. But it is. It's so powerful. The bride and the groom look at each other and they say, you know, I, John, take you, Mary, uh, to be my wife. I promise to be faithful to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, to love you and to honor you all the days of my life. 
That is the most, those are the most beautiful words you will ever say. <clears throat> the, what, I, what I tell couples in marriage prep, and this is from Balthazar. Balthazar says it so well. He says, real love desires to make a vow. Real love desires to make a vow. If you love someone, you know you don't love someone if you're like, like Gene and Alex, their, their wedding's coming up really soon. You're probably like, this is so awesome. <laughs> Can't wait to say those words. Um, I, Alex, I promise I won't say them for you. Um, <laughs> but what happens, right, is like uh, you never love someone. If you really love someone, you stop saying things like, let's see how this goes. Right? You don't say that. And if you really love someone, you don't say, honey, I love you so much. Let's, um, let's hang out on Tuesdays. <laughs> right? You don't do that. And the reason is because if you know real love desires to make a vow. Real love says everything, always, no matter what. And that's why marriage in the Catholic Church is not just fun and neat. It is sacred. Okay, so I get people in my office, and it actually looks sometimes, right? And it does. Sometimes it's a reality. Sometimes a divorce needs to happen civilly, right? If, so, if a woman comes into my office and she's being beat up by her husband, I'm not like, do you remember your vows, honey? Right, I don't do that. I never would. If a woman's getting beat up by her husband, you know what I say? We're getting you out of there today, <laughs> right? Get in the car. Let's go move you right now. And we're going to get divorced right away. And we're going to change your name. And I'm going to help you however I can. Sometimes this has to happen. The problem is not divorce. What Jesus says is if someone divorces and remarries, they commit adultery, he says. Because divorce is impossible. Yeah, so... The church essentially doesn't care what the government says. If two people make, like, like if two people go in their backyard and they're unbaptized and they love each other and they say, all right, let's be married for the rest of our life, we think that's valid. We actually do. We don't care too much about the government in, in terms of marriage. Um, that when we get to the moral section, we'll talk more about that. But if you're a Christian, right? And, and one last line, I'll, I'll come to you, Jennifer. One last line is on this. Think about it this way. One of my favorite lines on this is that if you can get out of a marriage and your vows don't mean anything, no human promise means anything. There is no more sacred promise we make as human beings. If you get a do-over as many times as you want, it cheapens marriage. And I know, by the way, I know this is really delicate. I know there, I know there are some of you who have been divorced. There is healing, there's forgiveness, there's redemption. We could spend in six classes on this. There are those things. But the teaching of God is true and right and beautiful. Right? If there's no consequences for anything, then all things lose sacredness. It cheapens things. When we say nothing matters, it can't help but be cheap. Okay, Jennifer. If you're widowed, right, marriage is, and Jesus teaches this in Matthew 19, is till death do you part. So marriage is only till death. Okay, we got to do, we have to cover four sacraments in five minutes. Just kidding. 
What was the earlier question that I forgot about? Sure. So can you go to a wedding of someone who's stepping away from the church? There's no official teaching. Different priests and different good Catholics will have different opinions about this. There's no official teaching. I don't think, and we're going to talk about, I know tonight seems like we should talk about gay marriage now. I promise you we're going to talk about that. I don't think you can go to a gay marriage. And we'll talk about why when we get there. But I actually think you can go to marriages. I think you got to examine, like, what your relationship is with that person. If you not going to the wedding, but burns a bridge and they say, I'm never ever gonna become a Catholic again because look at how judgmental you are, I would say go to the wedding. But make it clear, say, I love you. I think what you're doing is foolish. I think you should be married in the church. And I think you need to say that to be clear. But you say, I love you unconditionally and I'll, you know, I wanna be with you always. Uh, <clears throat> but I think you gotta speak the truth with love. So I think you can go, but on the other hand, if you're not going, says to the person, I love you, and this is serious, then don't go. Now, I would lean towards if, if you don't go to a wedding of someone who loves you, and again, good priests would disagree with me, but like, like my little brother got married, and he, he didn't even have a wedding ceremony. He and his wife went to the DMV and signed paperwork, and then had a party at a bar. And I know, and I'm like, your brother's a priest, right? Now, a lot, of, a lot of people would say, you can't go to that party. And I'm like, if I didn't go to the party with my little brother, like, he's never coming back. And so I think there's, there's an argument for that, but there's no official teaching of the church. Okay, uh, let's do Mary Jo first. Yep. Good. I did such a priestly thing tonight that was so dumb. I like worked, I put all of the handouts around priesthood and all of you guys are going to be married and I'm like, let's talk about priesthood and celibacy. <laughs> and you guys are like, ah, oh, boring. Okay, yes, we can talk about this. So marriage is not, so marriage, the whole story of the Bible is a story about marriage. Heaven, heaven so when, when you go, when you die and God willing you go to heaven, you're not going to be married to your spouse. Now, for most people, they're like, that's awful. <clears throat> now, here's, but here's the trick to it. And Jesus teaches this. Here's why. Are you going to love your spouse less than in heaven? What do you think? How many, are you going to love your spouse less than you do now in heaven? No. You will love your spouse in heaven much, much more than you do now. And your spouse, yeah, and you'll know each other. We're still people in heaven. Your spouse will love you much, much more than they ever loved you in this life. But heaven is the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is the marriage of God and his people. And that's the marriage in heaven. And what happens, and this is, I think this is so beautiful, Heaven is not just the marriage of individual people. In heaven, that love that you have for your spouse will be greatly increased and multiplied, but you'll have that for everyone. The love that all of us will have for each other in heaven will be overflowing, and it'll be unified in God. Um, so, so heaven, it's not that there isn't marriage in heaven because marriage is less in heaven. 
the marriage in heaven is much, much more. It's infinitely greater than any earthly. And the church teaches that priestly celibacy is a sign of that. That the best thing, the best thing on earth, the absolute best thing on earth is marriage. It's the best thing on earth. Well, that's on the other side of the sheet, but we're not going to get to it. But maybe we will. We're going to try. But <clears throat> marriage is the best thing on earth. But one reason why priests are celibate is that the church teaches that one of the things that happens is my life is supposed to be a sign that the best thing on earth, the very best thing on earth, it's so good, it's so beautiful, but heaven's even greater than that. And if there's something infinitely greater than even the best thing on earth, we can all sacrifice on this earth for something that is so powerful and beautiful in heaven. Did that, Mary Jo, did that get to it? Yep, exactly. Marriage, yep. 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 Uh, your grace. Yep. That person then meets a single person or another person. A celibate priest. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. Me neither, but I, this is what happens when RCIA is good. <laughs> you have two people that are madly in love with each other. Yep. Thrilled that they have found each other, just want to be married. Yep. Yep. You can literally look at somebody though and say, You're adulterers, or you're the adulterer because you were the one who was married, and, right. and say, Nope, you can't do it. I yep. can't believe that Jesus would look upon two people like that and go, Nope, it's not gonna happen. I yep. don't I'm struggling with that. Yeah, and so so th- this is the right question. So and, and I by the way, I have this is not abstract for me. This this is a situation I encounter somewhat regularly. And, and, I, and trust me, my heart does break in my office. You get people who were in bad marriages, and maybe they got married when they were 19 or 16 or whatever, and they just didn't, they were a kid, and they just didn't know better. And go south, they get a divorce, and they want to get remarried. Now, we should, we're not getting a priesthood tonight. Um, <laughs> it's important to talk about an annulment here, right? A, people think an annulment means Catholic divorce. What an annulment is, and if you ever need one of these, if, or if you're someone who needs one right now, I will come see me. I will walk through it with you. I will go with you every step of the way. An annulment is not a divorce. An annulment says a real marriage never took place. And so that's the first thing we try in those cases. And we say, and basically, and, and the, the logic behind this, right, is like <clears throat> there's, there's such a thing in the world as a counterfeit or another way to look at it is marriage is not just a contract, but it has parts of it that are contractual. And we all know there are things that invalidate contracts, right? So if I, um, if Steve, if you and I enter into a business relationship and I sell you my car and I lie to you and the engine actually doesn't work at all and I took three of the cylinders out, well, that would invalidate the contract because I entered into it with false information, right? So there are certain things that can that annul or make marriages invalid from the beginning. 
But what it can't be, right? If you stand before your spouse on your wedding day and you say, I will love you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. The church is saying, that's a really big promise. And it saves you. And here's the other piece of this. One more thing I want to say. Um, So the first thing we would do in that situation, Steve, is we would go for an annulment. And I do that all the time. And there are things that make a marriage invalid. Like if someone in a marriage never wants to have kids, they say, we're never having kids. That's, you know, they're not an evil person, but that's not marriage. We call that dating. And if you're dating, you shouldn't be engaged in premarital sex, right? Because the purpose of sex, which we'll get to again in morality, is union of spouses and children. And if you're not ready for that, you shouldn't be having sex, right? Um, so if someone, so that's one thing that'll give people a moment. If somebody goes and they say, I am never having kids, that's not marriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nope, we should bless it. Nope. So we should bless it. Someone who is, it's easy, we can, we can fix that. But, it, but it, a Catholic has an obligation to be married in the Catholic Church. And so he might not have known that, right? He might, I mean, and, and there's no guilt or blame there necessarily, but, but there's an obligation there, so we should bless that marriage. Yes, but tell me it's not too hard because we've got 10 minutes and then we've got a lot to cover. Uh-huh. So your odds are good. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Sorry, what? Add on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was easier to get annulment than to get out of contract. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, so, so I think that's, so I don't, here's what I'll say to that. I do think the annulments in the United States are, are real because I actually think you, you would not believe the amount of people who enter into marriage who don't, and they're pretty basic things. It's like children, permanence, right? Like someone says, this is till death was part. Well, we'll see. If someone has that attitude, again, that can't be a marriage. Marriage, by definition, is till death do us part. And you'd be amazed at the amount of people who enter into their vows with an asterisk and who have told other people, yeah, we'll see. That's not a marriage. It has to be till death do us part. Um, it has to be exclusive, right? It doesn't mean that if your spouse cheats on you, you can get an annulment. But if they had that attitude from the beginning that they're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to be faithful, not marriage. It's not marriage. So there are legitimate reasons, but I think that question's secondary. We could talk about maybe it should be cleaned up. I just don't know enough about the inner workings of that in the United States. I help people with annulments, but I'm not one of the, like, with the, the tribunal judges. Okay, can we do one couple, one or two last things? Um, I'm going to forget what they were.
What were we talking about before annulments? Yeah. Well, just let me just finish this, and then we'll, if we, how much time we got? Maybe we'll talk a little bit about priesthood. Um, so marriage, right? What is, it's, it's really worth thinking about what is the nature of love? Um, what is the nature of love? And, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it there tonight. Okay, last questions, and then we'll talk about priesthood. Yeah. So when somebody gets an annulment, mm-hmm. yes, that's what an annulment says. An annulment says that marriage never happened, and so that person is free to marriage, to, to marry again. <clears throat> A couple of things about that: people worry about the term illegitimate children. That there are no illegitimate children in terms of their person. There's there's no such thing as an illegitimate person that doesn't exist. That term, people will come to me and they're nervous about that. They say, Father Brian, I don't want to get an annulment because it'll mean my children are illegitimate. No, it doesn't. All illegitimate means that was a medieval secular term about inheritance rights. That's all that had to do with. What it was about was <clears throat> if, if, if someone's unfaithful in their marriage and they have children with somebody else, that those children don't inherit the same way that the children of a lawful marriage do. That's all that was about. It was actually not even a Catholic thing. It was a secular thing. So there's no such thing as illegitimate children. If you had an annulment, you're, you can be in 100% communion with the church. 100%. A lot of misinformation about there. If you, and if you've been divorced, you didn't get an annulment. Let's say you got divorced, you didn't get an annulment, and you're just divorced you can be 100% in communion with the church. 100%, please tell everyone you know this. 100%, 100%. I, I hear all the time people think they got a divorce so they can't come to Mass. That has never, ever, ever been true. You can be a much holier Catholic in that state than me. The problem is not divorce. The problem is divorce and remarriage. Right? Because in the church's eyes, until you get an annulment, you are still married to that first person. Okay, any last questions? Yes. No, it can be on one side. And there's lots of things. If you, if you need this, come talk to me. I will help you. There's a lot of misinformation out there about annulments. Um, I will help with it. it. It is not a perfect process, I will say that. And it's painful, actually. Um, but it's not meant to be. The church doesn't intend for it to be. It's just the nature of how difficult it is to go through it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really, really bad advice. Because the, the purpose of the purpose of dating is to find a spouse. Right? Otherwise, I could date. Right? What if, I mean, apply that logic to me. It's like you guys go out and you're like, you see me at some like romantic restaurant and I'm looking into some beautiful woman's eyes, you know, and they're like, FP, what are you doing? I'm like, back off. I'm just dating. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, no. 
Okay, other questions? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's the exact point. And so, and I think it's just there's a lot of confusion about this. And so we use the shorthand of divorce or the, just the term. And we, we understand, right? Like, it's, it's always tragic when there's a divorce, but sometimes it has to happen. And what we want to do is we want to build up people's understanding of marriage so that they have healthy marriages. That, and they understand marriage isn't just about I'm really, really attracted to you. And like when I'm like, you know, when I drop you off at your doorstep, I get that little like feeling like right here. You know, that's a good feeling. That's really good. That's not marriage, right? Okay. We have four minutes. What's your one question you want to know about priesthood? Usually it's either why is it only men or why are they celibate? You want to do one of those two? Okay, so yeah, celibate. Okay. So this is why um, I usually have a field day with this one with self-flattery, you know? Like, I know you all want to know why I'm not available. I know. Um, <laughs> what did I say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That was a true story. Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah. It's not, there's, there's something that's kind of parallel, but not really, because you can't, it, 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 there are pretty big differences, but it looks from the outside like it's similar. Okay, so let's, let's do celibacy as quick as we can, um, try and knock this out. So I put quotes on here for you, and this is the teaching of Jesus and St. Paul on celibacy. So, <clears throat> there's more, by the way, I, I just trimmed it for space's sake. Um, but here's, here's just an interesting thing. Just think about this for a second. Most people never, ever think about this. Um, why is it, and, and a lot of this has to do with if Jesus and Mary are the new Adam and Eve, which the New Testament teaches and which all the early Christians talk about a lot. Um, if that's true, and what, and what St. Paul says, it's very interesting. St. Paul says that Jesus is the new Adam, and this is Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Um, 1 Cor 15. What, what, he, what he's getting at is that he says that Jesus is the new Adam. What that means is he is the model human being. If you want to know what it means to be fully human, to live the life that human beings are called to live, Jesus is the perfect, he is the new, the new man. Okay. And here's the interesting thing. How, or, or most people don't think about this, why is it that Jesus and Mary are both celibate. Why are Jesus and Mary both celibate? And I don't, you don't have to answer it. I'm just, it's a rhetorical question, but, but why is that? And is there something 
Is there something there that's important that isn't just passing? And why does St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, which is on your sheet, why does he advocate that you should? He actually says you should be celibate if you're able to. Now, you know, it's hard right now because of the scandals, and maybe I should say something about that really briefly. Um, maybe we'll talk about scandals more when we get to next class or to morality, either way. Celibacy is not a cause of child abuse. Do, you, do we all know that? I hope you know that because all the stats show that. All the stats show that. The child abuse in the church is not about celibacy. And so everybody right now, the natural, normal thing to think is, oh my gosh, if we just let priests get married, this wouldn't have happened. It's not true. It, it, it happens at the same rate in Protestant churches. It happens a lot higher in public schools. Every organization out there. It doesn't make it okay. We all know that. But, the, but, it's not, but, but I just want to say that. Okay. So <clears throat> why are priests celibate? The really important thing here to say is that Jesus does not do anything that is superfluous. Right? When you look at the life of Christ and especially things recorded in the Gospels, there aren't things that are just accidents. Like, for instance, like when Jesus, for instance, in John 19, he has his cloak on and we're told that the cloak was seamless from top to bottom. And the soldiers are going to cast lots because they can't tear it. Well, in, in, in First Kings, cloak, a cloak is a symbol of the kingdom. And Elijah takes his cloak, is Elijah or Elisha, and he gives it uh, to um, uh, Rehoboam, who is a king of the north, and he tears it into ten pieces, and he says, take those ten pieces. And he says, because you're going to have 10 tribes of Israel and 10 of the tribes are going to go with you. And so his cloak is torn into 12 pieces. Two of the tribes are going to stay in the south with David's descendants. And so it's a sign of the kingdom. But Jesus' cloak is one piece woven from top to bottom. And John makes a big deal out of this. Why? Because the kingdom of God cannot actually be divided. You can cut yourself off from it, but you can't divide it. Okay. So Jesus is celibate. Why is that? Right? And when, so what Paul says, and we're going to have to cover more of this next time. Paul says this. He says, and if you look at your sheet, we'll read this one. Uh, the middle big paragraph. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or girl is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Um, he goes on, and I encourage you to read all that. But here's the teaching of St. Paul is simple. He says what celibacy is about is an undivided heart. Um, and I'm going to leave you with this. I, this is the last thing I know I'm over, but here's the last thing I'll say tonight. 
Celibacy, we usually think of it by itself. But celibacy, you have to understand it in context with two other things. What are the other two evangelical councils? Anybody know? Okay. So poverty... Chastity and obedience. So really quick, we're run through this really briefly. So all three of those things, every single person in this room is called to them. But priests and and what we call virgins in the church and religious are called to a more intense degree of these things. And next time what we'll do is we'll walk through the story of the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19. If you have time, I encourage you to read that. It's a great story and it's going to demonstrate this. But here's what St. Thomas Aquinas says. He says, if you, want, if you love someone, what you want to do is you want to give your life away, right? Those of you who are engaged or who are married, when you love someone, what you want to say is, I want to give you me. I want to give you my life. I want to give you my heart. I want to give you not just flowers and not just a nice dinner and not just, I don't know, a movie. I want to give you me. Love desires to make a gift, right? The gift of self. I want to give myself to you. And Aquinas says, and I love this, he says, a person has three good things. There's three good things in your life, three categories. The first thing is possessions, which are good, right? The things you own are good things. But Aquinas says, when you love someone, you want to give your life away. So the first thing, a person who wants to give their life to the Lord, the first promise they make is that of poverty. And they say, Lord, I, love, I have good things. I love the things I own. But I'm so in love with you, I want to give you everything. And so I renounce my possessions for your sake. The second one is chastity, Right? which is, for priests, it's celibacy, not being married. For married people, you're still called to chastity, right? Like you are called sexual desires, sexual desires within your marriage. That's a calling. If you're not married, you're called to restrain your sexual desires. All of us are called to this. But the second good, St. Thomas Aquinas says, greater than your possessions, the next best thing you have that's even greater than your possessions is your body. And he says, the greatest good of your body, the highest good of your body is sexuality. Everybody thinks the Catholic Church thinks sex is bad. We actually think it's holy. We think it's really good. And so when you love someone, you say, God, I love you so much, I will give you this. I'll renounce this for you. And the hardest and the highest is your freedom. Right? What you want more than anything out of life, what all of us want is we want to go, you can go your own way like Fleetwood Mac, Right? Doesn't it feel good when you get in your car and you don't have anywhere you have to be and you can just drive anywhere? I love that. <laughs> it's like freedom. You just feel that freedom. I get to go where I want to go. But if you, but Aquinas says the greatest good you have is your freedom. And if you love someone, you might even renounce your freedom and hand it to them. And so that's why priests do these three things. You guys, so it's real quick. See, Jesus all three, perfectly. On the cross, everything he has is stripped from him. He is poor. He is chaste. The church fathers knew Adam. He's on the cross, the new tree of life, and he is naked without shame, and his bride comes from his side. Jesus is chaste on the cross. 
Obedience is obvious. Jesus goes out of pure, obedient love. And lastly, my, one of my friends who's married, he always says, he says, Father Brian, you have to make promises of those three so that you can live what marriage forces me to live. <laughs> right? And you guys who are married in the room, like, when you get married, you're going to be poor. <laughs> you're going to be chaste. And trust me, you will be obedient to your spouse and your kids, which is one more reason why marriage saves you. One, one last line. I know I've gone way too long. Bishop Cousins, who's a good friend of mine in Minnesota, Bishop Cousins, he says, and I, and I think this, to get into heaven means I have to stop having everything mine, 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 mine. And I have to let go of it, which is what this does. And so Bishop Cousins always says, he says, everyone who goes to heaven is poor, chaste, and obedient, which is why God invented nursing homes. So that more people go to heaven. <laughs> because he's like, everyone in nursing homes are poor, chaste, and obedient. All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, never shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right of election. Scrutiny, sorry. Really, really fast. The first scrutiny is this weekend. It's for catechumens. That's right. Um, just a really quick note. I'm going to send out an email, so make sure you look at it if, if you're involved in it, if you're a catechumen. Um, but it's just during the 11 a.m. mass, catechumens and their sponsors will come forward, they'll kneel um, in front, and then we'll have a, um, a silent time of prayer. The whole congregation will pray for you, and then we'll, um, we'll pray aloud in intercession, intercessory prayer for you, and then Father Brian will do an exorcism. It, it's not like the movies. And we'll just do it, I think we'll just do it over all of them at once, but we'll see. Um, where we call down the Spirit, or he calls down the Spirit. I don't. Um, and then we'll dismiss you. You can call down the Spirit. So, that, that, so that's the first of three. So they're the last three Sundays of Lent. So this weekend at the 11 a.m. Mass for catechumens. So um, we'll see you there. And okay. then also just a reminder, heads up, we're having a big fun party after the Easter Vigil for all of you guys um, and your friends and everyone else can be right here. We're going to have fun. We're going to have food and drinks and make drinks and, um, <laughs> and maybe a dance floor. Anyway, it's going to be so fun. So it's going to be here. Yep, yep. And so it's going to be at like 1 a.m. or whatever time. Anyway, um, so start telling your friends and family so you can invite them. And I'm going to take an RSVP soon. Should we be expected to go to no, so the Easter Vigil will, it takes place of that. So, sorry I went over everybody. My, I'm trying not to do that, so my apologies. Have a great night. We'll see you next week.